Good evening, dear friends. Let me just see if I've got this adjusted right in terms of placing the mic. Is that okay at the back? Great. So I thought all these venerable teachers would uh, go out to dinner, and here they all are. (laughs) Which is very lovely. (laughs) And it's also very lovely to have the opportunity to share something, to offer, try to offer something back to all of you, um, because I'm really enjoying uh, being able to sit with you and uh, speak to some of you and uh, the privilege of being able to sit in on some of your interviews. So uh, I'm really happy to be able to offer something back in return. And it's also, of course, a bit of a conundrum. You know, I was sitting at home 10 days ago or so in Oxford and you've already heard four weeks of Dharma talks from these wonderful teachers so the question arises what am I going to add to any of that so I was just thinking that uh, I'd like to offer something simple relatively simple that I find helpful because uh, this mind likes simplicity it gravitates towards simplicity so a perspective or an angle on practice that uh, I hope might be useful to some of you I often think of dharma talks as like uh, a sort of vision correcting procedure at the end of the day I've worn glasses since or contact lenses since I was a child and you know when you go to the optician and they they try out all different sorts of lenses on you and say is it is it clearer now this way or this way and if you're like me you kind of can't make up your mind anyway Um, but it can help to just kind of tweak our lenses in different ways and each time that you're given a teaching or a dharma talk it maybe refreshes your way of looking And hopefully, um, sometimes that brings things into focus in a useful way. And also, hopefully, to encourage and warm the heart a little bit, or to tend to it in whatever way is needed this evening. So I like I like simple teachings and I particularly like the sort of uh, one-line summations of the Dharma. So one of my favorite is the teaching that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me or mine. Or another one that I love is the saying of the Dalai Lama, my religion is very simple, my religion is kindness. But the the short summary of the Dharma teaching that I'm going to um, use tonight is the one that uh, many of you will know that comes from the Dhammapada, which is usually translated as do good, refrain from doing evil, and purify the mind. In Pali, it's sabhapapasa karanam kusalasa upasampada. Sachita Pariyodapanang, Etang Buddhana Sasanang. And if we translate it more accurately, actually, the first thing it says, the non doing of all harm. And this is something that we're all already practicing simply by being here and observing the precepts together. 
so we can kind of bracket that one and uh, say, okay, well, we're, we're working on that already. And then the piece that I uh, really want to look at is the next bit that says kusalasa upasampada, which gets translated often as do good. But actually, the real meaning of it is more like taking in the good or taking in all that's good. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And this is partly because, as Sally was saying yesterday, we can get so focused on um, contemplating dukkha and the, the Four Noble Truths. We sort of lean more into the, the First Noble Truth quite often. And it can be really good, sometimes really helpful to reorient ourselves a little bit to actually contemplating happiness and well-being. So this is uh, coming at it uh, from a, a, a different angle from Sally last night, but along the same lines. So non-doing of all harm, taking in of the good and purifying, of the, purifying the heart. And like many of the teachings that we, we've been reflecting on, the Eightfold Path or the Seven Factors of Awakening, we can see this as a as a sequential teaching that one leads to the to another, and we can also see it as a as a um, simultaneous practice, if you like. Uh, but I really want to look at it in in the sequential sense tonight, because I think that actually the work of purifying the heart, which is the other thing that we're all uh, working very diligently at here is made much, much easier if we don't neglect this step, intermediate step, of taking in what's good. It's much easier to do the work of developing the heart and mind when it rests on a really um, solid foundation of well-being. So some of you might already recognize this phrase, taking in the good, from uh, Rick Hansen, who's a um, neuropsychologist on the West Coast. And it translates this word uh, upasampada. And this is the word that's used for um, when a, a monk or a nun takes the full ordination. There's not really a word for ordination in Pali. This is a very Western monastic Christian concept. But actually the upasampada is when one's admitted into a monastic community and we're actually, when you're welcomed in and become part of a community. So there's a real sense that um, you're taken into something and embraced by it. So this is the, the sense of taking in the good. And we notice that it doesn't actually say doing good as in the common, common English translation but taking in. And so it's a practice that involves actually receiving what's already here rather than making something happen. So for me, it, it represents a really um, useful way of uh, doing non-doing. You know, this is one of the koans of our practice is how do we do this non-doing? And uh, many of the teachers, particularly Joseph, have talked about 
resting back into what's here rather than uh, this constant tendency we have to be leaning forward into the future and to grasp at, at the future. And resting back into what's already here, taking in the good, is a really helpful way, I find, to, to do that. So that's uh, upasampada. And then kusala, the good, is what's wholesome and beneficial. And of course, this covers a really wide range of phenomena. Um, so Rick Hansen translates kusala as the good. And I'll say a bit more about that um, in a minute. But really, just for the moment, just take a really common sense approach to it. So one of the things we can, we can think about in terms of what's good, um, a useful starting place is uh, in the Mangala Sutta where the Buddha is asked by a deva to uh, explain for all those who are interested in happiness what are the highest blessings. And I'm quite fond of this sutta because my name Jaya actually is a short form of Jaya Mangala. So it feels like it's one of my signature tunes. This, this teaching. So at the very beginning it says um, that the greatest blessings begin with avoiding foolish people and associating with wise ones and honoring what's worthy of honor. So you can check all that off for what you're doing here. Yeah. And then it goes on living in conducive places for practice, suitable places, having uh, or being enjoying the fruit of past good deeds, which we all are in order to just be here, that, that circumstances have come together, that we can be here um, practicing like this. You know, we have um, these favorable circumstances that have come together in the past. And receiving wise guidance. So check. You know, we've already got the, the first... Uh, sets in the list are in place and then you can just actually think of the the specifics like right here right now what is there in your immediate experience of sitting here this evening that actually feels good wholesome uplifting even just basically pleasant so the sense maybe of having had some refreshment of tea or drinks, dinner, some time to shower or exercise, to walk, maybe do a little bit more sitting. And now we're together in a, in a quiet, peaceful place. Nobody's asking you to give a Dharma talk. <laughs> and maybe there's some sense of uh, ease in the body you know, and some sense of expectation or contentment in the heart perhaps just notice if there's anything in your body that feels comfortable and relaxed maybe there's just a sense of gratitude for this opportunity so if anything like that is present you can just really pause and take that in so as we become mindful of what's here, just allowing your, your attention to rest on some element of experience that feels good or feels nourishing, however simple or, or mundane it is. 
And then if you do that, just notice what the impact of consciously doing that is on the body and on the mind. Is there a little more mindfulness, a little more stability, a little more ease? Sometimes if we cast our mind around in that way, maybe it just, we feel like it just highlights all the things that are wrong. Just as when we turn our minds to practicing metta, we just suddenly become aware of the great ball of aversion that we're sitting with. So, yes, sometimes this can flush out difficulties. And I'll come back to that also in a a while. But in the meantime, just uh, see if you can attend to anything that feels um, okay or even pleasant. And as you do that, just I really want to emphasize this sense of receptivity. So you're kind of spreading out your awareness like a, a great big satellite dish to receive particularly experience that's nourishing or pleasant. Because what often happens when we sit down, we immediately notice that the person behind us or in front of us is breathing a little bit too loudly, or that the temperature in the room is a little bit hotter or colder than we'd ideally like, or that the pain in our body that had disappeared while we were having supper doing the walking meditation suddenly magically come back just when we came to sit down again, or maybe the digger that had stopped when we were outside the hall, not trying to meditate, just chooses to start up at this particular moment. This tends to be very often what we notice. And why? Why do we notice that? So this same Rick Hansen coined uh, or made an observation that also some of you will have heard that the, the mind is like Teflon for positive experience and Velcro for negative experience. We are adapted through our evolutionary um, process to look out for threat and danger, to look out for what's wrong and to take for granted or overlook everything that's okay. So to, to recognize that this is this is normal and this isn't, this isn't a mistake. It's not something that's wrong with us. But this practice then of taking in the good is something that can rebalance that tendency. There's a practice of taking in the good that actually comes from Rick Hansen's book, Hardwiring Happiness. And uh, this is... Uh, he 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 styles himself um a specialist in self-directed neuroplasticity <laughs> so for me i i i'm not so excited about this stuff but for some people it's really helpful to reflect that actually these practices um have a physiological impact on the be- on the brain and that we can actually um reset or recondition our default levels of happiness and well-being through practice. Many of us um, could benefit from having uh, a greater default level of happiness 
So in this in this practice of um, taking in the good, he has a, an acronym. So we've already frequently referred to the acronym of RAIN for dealing with or for, for um, meeting difficulty. So there's an acronym here which I wanted to share with you this evening uh, for the practice of taking in the good. And it's a, an acronym that is H-E-A-L, HEAL. So I'll, I'll speak about each of these pieces in turn. So the H is have, which means notice a positive experience that's already present, either in the foreground or the background of your experience, of your awareness. So it may be a physical pleasure or it may be um, more of a sense of emotional or spiritual well-being. And why does he include simple physical pleasures under the rubric of the good? So my question is, can we use them in a skillful way? Because as good meditators, we all know that what's pleasant isn't always good and what's good isn't always pleasant. So we all, with everything that I'm saying, we're approaching this with our wisdom still operating but also to have a, a allow some space for common sense. For example, how many of you have felt better and had your practice go more easily after you've spent out some time outside in nature, enjoying the sunshine and the autumn leaves? So our nervous system actually responds favorably to things that relax us and bring us a sense of safety and comfort and happiness. And you can think of the stories of the Buddha um, when he renounced his, ex- his ascetic practices and he, he had this memory of what it was like to be sitting under the rose apple tree by his father's fields when his father was plowing and the sense of well-being that arose. Right. As a, there was something in that environment that enabled his mind to settle and compose itself. Or perhaps also the story of uh, when he, took, he uh, received the gift of milk rice from um, Sujata before he sat down under the Bodhi tree. He allowed his body to be nourished and to take in something that was going to um, support him, give him well-being, give him energy. So I don't want to, you know, while we while we um, are careful about um, the addictive nature of sense pleasures, we also don't want to negate in our practice the contribution of physical ease and well-being. And soothing and relaxing the nervous system is really skillful. So if you think in the Anapanasati Sutta, we talk about calming and relaxing or calming the bodily formations. And psychologists actually distinguish um, between what are known as hedonic pleasures, which are things that give us an instant hit of pleasant feeling, and eudaimonic pleasures, which are ones that give us a more fundamental sense of ongoing fulfillment. Uh, your diamond is your guardian angel 
in ancient Greek, and eudaimon, you is good, so good guardian angel. So it's actually, they have a sense of, of blessing to them. And actually by choosing how we place our attention, we can start to transform ordinary hedonic pleasures into eudaimonic ones. So a pleasant experience um, can give rise to a wholesome state of mind. And this was, there was a really beautiful illustration of this yesterday morning in the question that somebody asked in the hall about gratitude. Uh, how reflecting on the, the work that people were doing to fix the road actually gave rise to a sense of gratitude. And then somehow the, the uh, and this was triggered by hearing the sound of the machinery outside. So the sound and the thought that came with the sound gave rise to a sense of, of pleasure. And then actually this, this moved into a sense of gratitude that became really expansive and started to cover, cover everything, to flavor everything. So another thing that I've also um, been contemplating a lot these last few days, and I'm sure many of you have, is the leaves and our relationship to the leaves and the, the beauty of the trees around us. And this beauty can really um, soothe and inspire us and also kindle happiness and gratitude. Or we can come at the leaves with the sense of... Um, you know, having grasped the teaching on the vipalasas or the distortions of perception that we heard the other night, we can maybe see some beautiful leaves and think, oh, I mustn't, I mustn't see the beautiful in the unbeautiful. I mustn't, you know, I mustn't see beauty here because this is impermanent and it's changing. And this is kind of picking up that teaching in slightly the wrong way, you know, it's still possible to allow ourselves to be touched by beauty. And our mindfulness will see when that's tipping from a sense of appreciation and gratitude, which are wholesome mind states, into, into a form of clinging. So I've been watching this in myself and remember doing that also when I've been here before at this time of year, how, first of all, there's a sense of really being touched and uplifted by the beauty. And then... Slowly, there's a sort of contraction internally, and one starts thinking, "I want this. I will somehow need to take this in even more deeply than I'm taking it in right now." And uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, "Oh well, it's only going to be a week or two, and it's all, it's all going to be over." And the, the, somehow the 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 pleasure of the experience becomes diminished. So we can we can feel when it's tipping over into clinging and craving. And so the danger in this is not the, the pleasure in itself, the, the sense of pleasure in itself, but it's the, it's the clinging that arises with it. But if we allow this to bring us to a sense of contentment and gratitude, these are other things that are named in this Mangala Sutta, the Sutta on the Highest Blessings. So with all these teachings, we have to apply them with, with a sense of balance, we become skillful in seeing what's needed. You know, when do I need it? When would a little reflection on distortions of perception be helpful? But when would it be helpful to actually allow myself really to, to settle into this and to enjoy this experience? 
it's sort of like becoming a, a great chef who knows which bit to sprinkle in when, how to get the balance of flavors just right to create the dish that you want. And we do this by trial and error. So one of the things is not to, not to freak out trying to uh, apply everything perfectly, but just to see, okay, well, well sometimes we're going to err a bit one way, sometimes we're going to err a bit another way. And this is how we learn. Okay. So how we learn about the good as well. Sally was talking about how we really, more and more we, we explore deeply what actually this good that we're taking in might be. What is the real meaning of happiness? And I love um, that she said how um, Venerable Analia says that our practice is an ever greater refinement of joy. So it can be a, a joyful experiment you know, choosing what we what we take in in this way. So this is H is to have is to notice, to actually uh, be mindful of, aware of good experience as it arises. So the E is for enrich. So what Rick Hansen says is stay with the experience for five to 10 seconds or longer, so that it really programs itself into you. Open to the feelings in it and try to sense it in your body and let it fill your mind, enjoy it. Even encourage it to become more intense. So ways that you can do this is to find something novel in it or to really notice it with clarity Rather than um, just kind of have a habitual perception about it, be really, really present for what's actually arising, which is never the same as the last time you experienced it. And then also recognizing how it's valuable to you. And these are both properties of samasati, in fact, to, to really see something afresh in the moment and also to appreciate um, it's ben what's beneficial about it or what's wholesome about it. To distinguish the wholesome. So noticing in this way enriches our experience. And when we're noticing and enriching beneficial mind states like satisfaction, for example, we're actually practicing wise effort. We're learning how to give rise to these states and how to amplify and prolong them. Or we're, knowing, we're learning how these states arise and learning how to amplify and prolong them. So this is E, enrich. Have, enrich. A is absorb, absorbing wholesome states. So... What's, what Rick Hansen says here is intend and sense that the experience is sinking into you and you into it. And this, again, you know, reminds me of this sense of upasampada, being embraced by, absorbed into, and becoming one with a community. So you let the experience really land in your mind. And he says, maybe even visualize it doing that like a warm golden light. And this is sort of somehow, sometimes how we, we use these sort of images in, in practicing metta, which makes me reflect a little on 
actually the meaning of Brahma Viharas or Vihara. Vihara is a dwelling or abiding place. It's a place that we inhabit. And inhabit is related to habit. So when we dwell in a wholesome experience, it actually becomes, becomes part of our repertoire, more easily accessible to us. So many, many times you have heard that what we frequently think and ponder becomes the inclination of our mind. So this is, this is what a vihara is. It's a place where we come home to rest, if you like, a, a default setting of the system. And this sense of absorption, of absorbing experience, it also makes me think of um, the similes, there's some beautiful similes for the arising of these jhana factors that Sally was speaking about last night. So I just thought that I wanted to read um, one or two of them. So again, these will be familiar to some of you. So this is talking about the arising of um, piti and sukha. So, and these similes, they, they, in, they're in the suttas over and over again referring to practicing jhana, but we don't have to be practicing jhana in order for this to resonate and actually um, sometimes yeah, be of use to, um, to us in, in attuning to certain levels of experience. So the meditator makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. This is the pity and sukha, born of seclusion. Drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there's no part of the whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it, sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it until the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it, and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too, a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, so that there's no part of the whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion." I've always loved this simile. And there's something to me that I find helpful about um, looking at it or feeling into it from the, the, this um, stance of receptivity. So what happens if we, rather than think, you know, we, we train in being the skilled bathman or the bathman's apprentice who's needing the system um, to, to give rise to these states, is actually what would it be like to, insofar as there's a sense of self, to locate the sense of self in this ball of bath powder and just feel as if you're receiving the moisture, you're receiving the massage, you're receiving this kind of softening, the body be becomes soft and so on. So rather than we're doing something, we're actually resting back into an ex experience and allowing the experience to arise. 
And similarly for the second one. So this is, this is when the mind becomes more settled, making the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there's no part of the body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from east, west, north or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill and pervade the lake, so that there'd be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body, so that there's no part of the whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So with whatever a wholesome experience is arising, you know, can we, um, maybe, we, maybe it may be that these states of calm and bliss are arising in the body, but with any wholesome state, can we let it pervade our system in such a way? So I like to, to reflect on this as a, as a receiving rather than a doing. So some thoughts on absorbing. And then the L, the, the last piece, is linking. So linking positive and negative experiences. And maybe we, for some of us, the, the positive and negative are not very useful terms because they, they imply a sense of judgment about our experience. But maybe we think about it in terms of easeful experience and challenging experience. So he says, when there's a, a vivid and a stable sense of a positive experience or an easeful experience in the foreground of awareness, then we can also be aware of something more challenging or difficult in the background. And this is our practice to get really skilled at holding both in awareness at the same time, to have that ability to go back and forth between one another. So if we're being really precise about whether these things can be simultaneously present in experience, Carol was saying, they're just moving so fast. But we can get skilled at moving backwards and forwards between them rather than being locked into what's difficult. So this is something we can really investigate in our meditation. What can be present alongside difficulty? And what difficulties can we still hold in a larger context of well-being? The one area where we can really see this and use this is in the dynamic interplay between the hindrances and the awakening factors. The moment we become mindful of a difficult state of mind like a hindrance, then the beneficial state of mindfulness is present. If we can really uh, lean into the mindfulness, let ourselves notice, become mindful that we're mindful, as we were saying this morning, I think, or the other morning. We can arouse interest 
And again, then there's there then already there's a wholesome experience that we can rest into, even if the dissatisfaction, the the restlessness, the um, aversion, or whatever is still present. We have something else that we can keep tapping into. So mindfulness, we can arouse mindfulness, we can arouse interest, we can arouse energy, even when these hindrances are still present. And actually, if we can settle into those conditions, then this naturally gives rise to the rest of the awakening factors. So these are kind of results that come from the others. And as we take in the good, then the hindrances naturally start to subside and we don't actually have to work hard at removing them. We can just allow them to subside. So learning to link and to hold ease and difficulty together is, an, again, it's an art that we learn with practice. And sometimes we have to uh, open and close in relation to this. So the, there's an image that I think I first heard from Carol of um, the heart as a sea anemone. So sometimes, you know, these creatures that open and uh, take, in, take in the nutrients around them and then suddenly something comes along and they contract and they close to protect themselves, to protect the soft, the soft um, animal inside. And this is what actually our systems need to do but we've become skilled at being able to open again rather than jam shut. So in terms of linking difficult and um, linking easeful and difficult experience, so Bonnie mentioned the other day about how um, one practice when we're feeling really, uh, really stressed or really challenged is to just actually this very simple practice of orienting to our surroundings that comes from somatic experiencing just to recognize what's around us that's actually um, neutral pleasant or all right that gives us a sense of okay there's something else other than just this difficulty I'm grappling with Sometimes we, we have the possibility of really shifting our attention just to what's, what's easeful or positive in our experience. Sometimes that's not possible. And in those moments, then we can connect, if we can connect with a sense of kindness or compassion, even a sense of patient endurance, then we, again, we have something wholesome to rest into. These are all positive experiences. So when metta or compassion arises in response to a difficulty, can we really absorb into that? To have that be our, the first response to the difficulties we encounter rather than the sense of trying to get rid of them. Our experience is so multi-textured and so flickering. And the more that we've developed our capacity to take in, take in the good and to see the, the changing nature of experience, to see the, the flickering nature of experience, then the less, less our tendency is to get bogged down in the difficulties. So I think another possible meaning for the L of, that, uh, of linking is letting go, 
And actually, this is what enables us to switch between the difficult and finding a place of ease, to develop this resilience, the ability to return to well-being, even in the midst of difficulties, of losses and disappointments. So letting go can mean, um, we could see it as a coming back to the fullness of the present moment. So one image that's often used is to have difficulties, that difficulties are like, a, um, like salt, that if we drop it into a very small cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. <laughs> if we drop the same amount of salt into a lake, then it's barely noticeable. And really learning to take in and inhabit the good that's here, it vastly increases our capacity. We, the, then our, our awareness becomes like a lake in which the difficulties, um, they can arri- they'll arise and they pass, but they don't have the same impact. So this is heal, have, enrich, absorb, link, and let go. So I just want to talk about a few other things that we can notice and take in. Some other um, other goods that we can take in. So one one thing is simply as the mind quiets down in meditation that we can, we can notice more and more uh, refined states of happiness that are not just depesent, dependent on pleasant sense experience. Even something about just stopping and being still, being here. There's a sense of, it's often a sense of relief, like we're putting something down. If we really stop and become present, we can put down these great big heavy burdens of past and future. And even to, for the moments that we do that, to the extent we do that, is there a sense of actually something pleasant that I can rest into, something good to rest into? Another thing is to notice when hindrances are absent. We spend a lot of time being aware of hindrances, but do we pay the same level of attention to the absence of hindrances? This is just given just as much importance in the teachings on on Satipatthana, on the foundations of mindfulness, knowing when hindrances are absent. There are these similes that the Buddha used of, to describe the relief that comes from actually the hindrances falling away. So the similes of um, having recovered from a disease or an illness, having escaped from prison, having paid off a debt, having been released from slavery and having safely crossed the desert after a long journey. You know, this is the kind of relief that comes from um, the hindrances falling away. And if we just notice their absence, this in itself can be a cause for the arising of a really wholesome kind of joy. And it's okay to lean into that a bit and to make that really conscious and to invite that kind of joy. This is moving, moving our, from our mindfulness and investigation, bringing forth energy and moving 
towards um, the awakening factors, moving into the awakening factors. Another thing to take in is recollecting our own sila, our own practice of non-harming. So rather than judging ourselves for all the ways that we've messed up, you know, can we notice the ways in which we haven't and the ways that we've, we've, actually, um, we've actually refrained from causing any harm? In that way that we're actually noticing what's worthy of honor in ourself and honoring it. So there's the famous story of Angulimala, who was the mass murderer who became a monk and an arahant. And one day he was, he, he was with the Buddha and they came across a woman who was having uh, great difficulties in childbirth. And the Buddha said, you should go to her and, and tell her that by, by, your own, by your virtue, by the fact that you've never harmed a living being, may she experienced ease and be safe in her childbirth. And Angli Mala said, how can I possibly say that? I've killed hundreds of people. And the Buddha said, ah, but since you became a monk, you have never knowingly harmed a living being. And Angli Mala went and said this to the woman and, and she was healed or her, her childbirth went smoothly. And this is, this is used as a, as a blessing, uh, blessing chant for um, women at times of giving birth now. But just to really see how, you know, we don't, we, we, our tendency again, you know, is to focus on what's wrong, all the ways that, all the things that we've done wrong, rather than notice the ways in which actually um, sila is present, harmlessness is present. Even, even the Dalai Lama, 14 lifetimes as a Dalai Lama, he says, how, ma how many millions of lifetimes has he had? There must have been some of them in which he messed up, you know. We kind of forget that. We sort of think, we think of people as being superhuman, but even for the most virtue of us, even the Buddha, before he became the Bodhisattva, you know, he must have messed up as well. But we get a confidence from actually noticing the ways in which we really, we're practicing skillful states, the ways in which we are practicing harmlessness. And when we do this, it's like we don't have to make happiness arise. If we really, really take that in, then happiness arises by itself. So just to, to repeat this often, often shared um, teaching, uh, for one who's virtuous, it's a natural law that non-remorse will arise. For one who's free from remorse, it's a natural law, dhammata, it's in accordance with the nature of things, in accordance with the dharma, that gladness will arise. For one who feels gladness, joy will arise. And when there's joy, the body will be serene. And just note that the body being serene doesn't have to mean that it's pain-free. There can still be, all this can be going on even if your backache or your knee pain is still there. When the body is serene, one will naturally feel happiness. When one is happy, the mind will be concentrated. 
And when the mind is concentrated, it will know and see things as they really are. Metta, also appreciating kindness and in ourselves and in others. So noticing, rather than thinking about all the times that we're not a very kind or nice person, just noticing when moments of goodwill arise. So what, often we, we kind of worry and think, how I, I would really like to be a nicer, kinder person. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but it, it surely happens to me. But have you noticed that it's very easy to be kind when we're feeling contented and happy? When people are contented and happy, they usually manif- we experience them as kind. So rather than worrying about becoming a kinder person, become skilled at being happy and contented and the kindness will begin to arise. The same with uh, generosity. And the same with having less selfishness, which of course is, is related to generosity. So you can notice how a sense of ease and contentment actually loosens the sense of self, whereas the clinging recreates it. So rather than going looking for an experience of anatta, you know, as an, or thinking about anatta as an intellectual activity, can we just develop a taste for non-selfing? We can use contentment uh, as, a, as a gateway to diminishing that sense of self. So I might have talked some about gratitude and things, but I might save that for next time, I think. That's probably close to enough. I wanted to mention um, the story in the suttas about Gatikara the potter, who was uh, a great disciple of a previous Buddha, not the not Shakyamuni Buddha, but the previous Buddha, who uh, was... He was very poor, but he would always share whatever he had with the Buddha and support him. And he also um, was very uh, naturally prone to, or naturally had this ability to really realize and take in the benefit of his generosity. So I will just like to share a little piece of that, I think. So Gatikara was he was this potter who who um was devoted to the Buddha and he didn't become a monk because he was supporting his his aged and blind parents. And he was very poor. He would just put out his pots. He he didn't um ask money for his pots, he would put them out and people would leave things in return. And this, the Buddha said, On one occasion when I was living at Vebalinga, it being morning, I dressed and taking my bowl and outer robe, I went to the potter Gatikara's parents and asked them, Where has the potter gone, please? Venerable sir, your supporter has gone out, but take rice from the cauldron and sauce from the saucepan and eat. 
I did so and went away. Then the Potagatikara went to his parents and asked, Who has taken rice from the cauldron and sauce from the saucepan, eaten and gone away? My dear, the blessed one Kasapa, accomplished and fully enlightened, did. And then the Potagatikara thought, It is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me that the blessed one Kasapa, accomplished and fully enlightened, relies on me thus. And rapture and happiness never left him for half a month or his parents for a week. (laughs) (laughs) And this story goes on different occasions of that, but I love that rapture and happiness never left him for half a month or his parents for a week. And I'm sure they then didn't get into a lot of thinking papancha about the generosity, (laughs) otherwise the rapture and happiness wouldn't have lingered so long. (laughs) So... Next time your mind is casting around for what should I do next in my meditation, or we don't know what to do, or how can I improve my practice, this is a one option that you have, is to just ask instead, what is there right now that I can appreciate? And see where that takes you. So you could use, if it appeals to you, this acronym of HEAL, have, enrich, absorb and link or let go all the goodness that's already here. There's all Dharma teachings move through well-being, through happiness. And we find ourselves trying to bypass it somehow to get to Nibbana quicker. You know, we're in a hurry to get to Nibbana. But it's not this sense of well-being and happiness at ease is not an optional extra. You know, it's the way. So I recommend becoming skilled at taking in the good and letting that help to purify the heart. There's a quote, and I, can't, I don't know if it's from the Dalai Lama or whether it may be from somebody else. Um, that's maybe one of these fake Dalai Lama quotes. There is no path to peace and happiness. Peace and happiness is the path. Okay. And that's really worth contemplating. So may you all have peace and happiness. Thank you for listening. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.